It seems to me that for kids, Christmas is all about gifts. Come to think about it, it's all about gifts for grandmothers, too. <laughs> and for grandfathers who have to pay for all the gifts. In my life, I've received some great gifts, and I've received some that I was less excited about. One year, there was a, a good-sized box under the tree with my name on it. it came from my wife, and it was kind of heavy. And I thought, all right, I've, I've dropped enough hints for the skill saw, and it's coming. I'm getting a new skill saw, and I was, I was so excited, and I opened it up, and it was a bread machine. I never liked that bread machine. <laughs> Will your gifts make you happy on Christmas Day? I would submit to you that they will, no matter what they are, if, if you first of all, focus on the real gifts that God has given you already. And the first of those is the gift of forgiveness. The gift of forgiveness in Luke chapter 7, we have a, a, a powerful, emotional story about forgiveness. It starts in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house... She brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and she stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. This is his internal conversation. This man, if he were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him out loud. Be careful what you think, folks. <laughs> Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, say it, teacher. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, 500 days' wages, and the other owed 50 denarii, or 50 days' wages. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman, and he looked at the woman while he was saying to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water to wash my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss or no customary greeting. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven." For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. There's a strong emphasis on the word feet in this text, because in their society, the feet were, were the lowliest part of the body. 
And, and the idea that, that she would uh, wash his feet and kiss his feet and anoint his feet almost didn't make sense compared to her, you know, the traditional way of loving someone, of hugging them and kissing them on the face or what have you. But it shows her deep contrition of heart that she realized she was a sinner and, and it would appear that she was there not as a forgiven one, but one hoping for forgiveness. Certainly, it, she didn't know, neither did anybody else at that time, all of God's truth of forgiveness. And we don't have to merit God's forgiveness. But she didn't understand that. She was just there saying, oh, this man talks about forgiveness. This man talks about new life. And oh, boy, I would so much like to have that. And she is there kissing his feet and, and worshiping him. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Now what is the difference between the sinful woman and the Pharisee? The key difference is this. She knew she was a sinner. And he foolishly thought, I'm not a sinner. She's a sinner. She's so much of a sinner, I know it in public. But not me. I do all of these things on my list. I am not a sinner. She knew her sin. Do you know when it's easy to see sin? When it's in somebody else. Oh, 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 oh. There was a time when Peter was trying to understand the idea of forgiveness and his responsibility. And, and he said this. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? and I forgive him. Up to seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, I think it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize Jesus wasn't advocating that we get a little notebook and we, we number all those things that we forgive. No, he was trying to say just many, many, many times, no limit to these times. Now, we struggle with this standard in life because, frankly, it's hard to forgive someone who repeatedly sins against us. But here's what I want you to think about today. What must it be like for God? If, if you have a person in your life or a couple of people in your life who, who have failed you a number of times and, and, and you're tempted to think, I'm not going to forgive them this time. Or maybe you think like the world, which says, no forgiveness till you deserve it. What must it be like for God? There's an old illustration uh, trying to help people conceptualize their sins. It came from evangelism explosion materials years ago. And it said, just imagine you only sin three times a day. Okay? In a year, that would be roughly a thousand sins. And so multiply that time how many years old you are. I'm 56, so let's say 56,000. Let's give me credit for the first, uh, let, let, let's give me credit for the first six years and just say only 50,000 sins. How is that for God? What does God think of the quantity of our sin? See, we tend to look around and think, well, today I was pretty good. But how many times have we come to God and, and what is the answer when we go? Here's what the answer is. If we confess our sin, that is, if we admit that we are sinners, we have done wrong, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is based on the, on the truth that we have already believed in Christ as our Savior. If you've never believed in Christ as your Savior, there is no forgiveness of sin for you, and there will be no forgiveness of sin until you believe. But once you've accepted Christ, God sees you as forgiven. He puts you into his family. And then as we walk with the Lord day by day, it's upon us to to keep our closeness with God by confessing our sin. But even as believers, we, we, you know, in fact, as believers, we probably know that we're sinners even more. And so we walk and we sin and we confess and we sin and we confess and we sin and we confess. And you know what? God is happy to hear our confession. God never gets tired. He's never up in heaven going, oh, that sin again? Really? Can you not get a handle on that? What have you been doing? What have I been telling you? None of that. He's just up there going, good. The extent the extent of God's forgiveness is staggering. Here's Jesus. When he had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. And Jesus said about the people who were actually nailing him on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his clothing and gambled for it. Could you do anything worse than crucify Christ? If I understand the scripture correctly, it is your sin and my sin that sent him to the cross. So in a way, we did crucify Christ. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. Now the forgiveness doesn't come until the confession comes. I understand that. But the attitude of forgiveness is ever-present. He's ever ready to forgive. Do you need one more word of encouragement about forgiveness? The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. When 1 John 1, 9 says God is faithful, it means it. God isn't, God isn't capricious. He, 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 he isn't up in heaven going, well, I'll forgive you, but not you, or I'll forgive you this time, but not next time. No, he's faithful. Do you want to enjoy Christmas? Get alone with God, open his word, read some passages. I've put them in the application notes like Psalm 25, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, where David talks about his sin and he talks about the blessedness. Blessed is the one to whom God does not hold his transgressions against him. Go to the New Testament, read Romans 1 through 8 that culminates with this this phrase. There is therefore now no condemnation and what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Thank God for the forgiveness of your thousands of sins. Thank God for the ongoing forgiveness that is yours. And you know what will happen? If you really meditate on that, you'll become so blessed it won't matter if you get socks or underwear or a new Mercedes-Benz. Because you will have a mind and a heart that says, I know what's really important here. What's really important is I've been forgiven. All of the rest of it's gravy. If I get some nice gift, wonderful. If I don't, what's the matter? I'm on my way to heaven, my sins are forgiven. I can talk to God, I'm close to him. 
Forgiveness is the greatest gift of all. If you're here today and you've never received forgiveness, oh, I would love to share that with you today. I would love to open God's word further with you and help you to come into Christmas on Tuesday morning knowing that God has forgiven your sins. Well, there's a second thing, a second gift that God has given us that that I think will help you to enjoy Christmas and enjoy whatever you get, and that's this. Enjoy God's provision for your life. Enjoy God's provision for your life. Many years ago, when our kids were young, my my wife, uh, on a given night, told one of the kids to holler down to the basement. We lived in a house with a basement. That was truly the man cave. Uh, and uh, had a little shop down there and, and uh, storage and stuff. And She said, holler down to the basement and tell Dad it's time for dinner. So they went, Dad, it's time for dinner! And I said, what are we having? Scraps! <laughs> Scraps! That was her term, her derogatory term for leftovers. (laughs) You know, it's what you'll be eating on Wednesday. (laughs) Scraps! You know, there are many times in life when we start to feel like we're living in the scraps. Christmas time is a two-edged sword. It, it, it can be a wonderful, happy time. It can also highlight what's not there. And it's not hard, especially in our prosperous American society, to feel like we don't have much. Um, please don't get me wrong when I say this. There's a radio station in Seattle that raised $500,000 to give Christmas presents to kids. To kids who don't have families. And we think the most important thing in their life is going to be a Christmas present. Now I understand, I understand the value of that. Don't get me wrong. But in our society, we've gotten so upside down that we think if a kid is, is homeless or if a kid is in difficulty, he needs a Christmas present. Oh my. It's really easy to feel like we don't have much. We look around, we look at the neighbors and how big the pile is by their Christmas tree. And and you know, if you meditate on the meager number of gifts under your tree and the major amount of gifts under their tree, and if you, if you look at that and think about it long enough, you can get a real good case of the poor me's going. Boy, look, my, my life is terrible. Or maybe you get on the phone after Christmas, or, you know, that's really old technology, you know. I mean, maybe you tweet out what you got, you take, snap a picture, and look what I got. Somebody, somebody snaps a picture and tweets back, and it, theirs is bigger and better. And you're thinking, I didn't get what I want. It's real easy to feel, to feel like your life is meager and small. It doesn't feel that great. It starts to feel like the scraps. How can we really enjoy what God gives us in life? Well, the first way we can really enjoy it is recognize that what you have comes from God. Recognize that what you have comes from God. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, 
comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Now that says every good gift. Now I got some lousy gifts, so you know I'm not that happy. No, this verse is clearly inferring that all of the good things in our life, everything that we have comes from God. And we need to stop and say, wait a minute, God, God has put me where I am. Do you know how young children respond when the last present has been opened? What's the first thing they'll say? Is that all? You're going, no, I got a present for you. <laughs> You've been there. <laughs> yeah. And you're thinking, you ungrateful child. How do you suppose God feels in heaven when we look at our lives and then we go, is that all? And the reason we're saying that is because we're so focused on the stuff of life. What we've got to understand is life is not about material possessions. Life is not about material possessions. I love gizmos and gadgets and tools as, uh, more than many of you do. But that is not what life is about, and we've got to remind ourselves of that. Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 says this, Now godliness, being like Christ... With contentment, let me paraphrase it and say it makes one rich. Godliness with contentment makes one rich. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You remember that little phrase, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And they might buy a new suit and put on him, but he ain't taking even the suit with him. Did your most recent new cell phone change your life? <laughs> change your wallet. Did that new car fill your soul? For a couple of days. When you're on the edge of eternity... Do you think you'll wish you had more stuff? No, we all know that. In fact, generally as people get older, they tend to learn that anyway, and they look back and realize what, they start to realize what really matters in life. I want to challenge you to start practicing that wherever you're at in life today. If you're very young, if you're in the middle, or if you're uh, getting up there in years, to say, you know what, my life is not about stuff. Having food and clothing, let me be content. We've also got to recognize that the greatest provision for life is God himself. We, we look at a house, we look at, in our society, a car, uh, we look at medical care, we look at uh, a number of things that contribute to the quality of life. And when they are not in place, we get all bent out of shape. i got to have this. I deserve that. It's my right, and so on. And yet the greatest provision for life is God himself. Let your conduct, your way of life, be without coveting, without desiring stuff. Be content with 
what you have. For he himself, when the scripture is translated that way, it's not because the English translator thought he would beef it up. It's because in the original language, God wrote it that way to stress it. He didn't just say he, he didn't just say himself, he said he himself. Be content, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If I asked you the question today, what is the greatest possession you have, what would you say? I'm giving you a clue. What's your greatest possession? God himself. God is with you. Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. He himself has said he will never leave you nor forsake you. What an incredible blessing we have. This week, there will be toys, both little kid toys and big kid toys, received, played with, and broken. (laughs) There will be technology, gizmos, and gadgets given and received that will be obsolete in a year. I know for a fact that some of the Christmas lights on my house right now won't work next year when I take them out of the box. I'll put them in the box. I don't know why. But they won't work. But I also know that God will be with me on Tuesday and next Tuesday and a year from Tuesday throughout eternity. This verse we we often quote, but I want to focus on one phrase in particular today. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted. God's protection of your spiritual life is faithful. Not only is God's protection faithful, but listen to this. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities. And I know we don't like that word pity. We could could put the word in there. It has sympathy or compassion. God has compassion for those who fear him. Why? Because he knows we are made of dust. (laughs) He looks down at us and, and frankly his expectations aren't that high. Now I'm not diminishing the fact that we should be striving to be like Christ. But God knows when the pressures of life come that we need help and care. And that's why he has this kind of attitude toward us. He has compassion. He has sympathy toward us. This week, you can watch the home remodeling TV shows. The the newest one that I enjoy is uh, the Million Dollar Contractor. The guy remodels apartments in New York City. And... The contracts range anywhere from 200000 to $1.5 million to remodel the inside of an apartment. And, uh, you know, you can watch those shows and then you get looking around at your humble digs and go, oh, this place needs some work. <laughs> get up and do something, man! <laughs> You can watch the celebrity news shows and see how little money you really have 
compared to their lives. You can compare your life to your neighbor, your workmate, your brother-in-law, and discover how far on the other side of the tracks you live. Or you can meditate on the greatness and closeness and faithfulness of your God, your Father, and your Savior, who provides all that you need, especially himself, so that you can be content in your eternal riches. There's one more thing that you need to have to enjoy Christmas, and that's this. We need to enjoy God's gift of normal life. Normal life, usual life, customary life, everyday life. Fill in the phrase. Listen to what what was the original intent of God when he created man and woman. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea birds of the air over the cattle the earth over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth this was god's original intent and it goes on so then he you know first of all he had he had his plan and so he did create man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them Then God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Clearly inferred in this original instruction from God is labor. Okay, Work was not a four-letter word until after sin. You know, after sin, God said, Now you are going to eat from the earth, but it's going to be by sweat, and there's going to be thorns and thistles and so on. But before the fall, after the creation, God said, I want you to manage to manage the rest of the creation. I don't know exactly what all that would have entailed. I really don't. But it involves some kind of effort on the man's part. Call him a gardener. Call him an animal husbandman. Call him whatever you like. It involves some work. God always intended for us to be engaged in productive activity that supported the family. And this is reinforced throughout the New Testament. And I'll not take time, but you could look. And there's a number of places that, that God reinforces that concept. And then the other thing that God intended was this. He intended for us to live in families and enjoy the benefit of relationship. In Genesis chapter 2, God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will create a helper that is suitable or compatible to him. And so he created woman and brought her to the man. And and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the two were naked and unashamed, the scripture says. They were married. They were without problem. They were ruling the earth. All of that was God's intention for their life. The phrase can't live with them, can't live without them, excuse me, can't live without them and can't shoot them about husbands or wives only came into our experience after sin. When God created Adam and brought, him to, brought Eve to him, they enjoyed their life together. And this is clearly God's norm for mankind. I'm not, I'm not trying to insult those who are single 
You know, there's a whole reference to that in the New Testament as well. But clearly, God's normal pattern for life is for us to be married, to have children, to work, to support ourselves and our family, and, and to conduct a what we would just call normal life. The book of Ecclesiastes records the philosophical and experiential investigations of Solomon about the meaning of life. And one of the conclusions he came to was this. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments, your clothing be always white. Let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you, your empty life that's coming to an end under the sun, all the days of your vanity, for that's your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. Now, if you can read the book of Ecclesiastes and also get a real good funk going when you consider how... how how much Solomon saw the futility of life, but what he saw futility in was making pleasure or work or other things the point of life. He doesn't say here that normal life is what we're about, but he does say it is good for us to enjoy our eating and our drinking and our relationship with people. It is the blessing of God. Daily life is a gift from God. In the New Testament, it says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's what it's about, saying we live our normal lives. What gets in the way of enjoying normal life? Well, the first thing that gets in the way of enjoying normal life is too much care about the details. Do you remember Mary and Martha and Jesus? Jesus came to dinner at Martha's house, and Mary sat at Jesus' feet to listen to his words, and Martha was working busy, busy, busy trying to get the meal ready, and she was peeved because Martha was sitting listening to Jesus, not helping her. And here's what Jesus said. Martha, or the, the narrator says, Martha was distracted with much serving, and Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things things. This is one of my challenges at Christmas time. I want the meal to be perfect according to my standards. Meanwhile, I miss the interacting with the grandkids. Okay? I have to work on that. I have to care less about the details. I knew a woman many, many years ago who had two Christmas trees in her house. She cared so much about the details. One, in the formal living room, had all gold decorations just put on just so perfectly, and all the presents under that tree had to be wrapped with gold paper and gold ribbon. And then there was a tree in the family room that was just decorated by the family. This looked perfect. Now, it's not a sin to have two trees. I understand that. The question we need to ask is, what do I care the most about? And do I care so much about some things that I'm missing the blessing of everyday life? 
too much focus on the details, too much focus on more important things. And I put that in quotes and you'll see why. What gets in the way of enjoying normal life? Too much focus on the important things. There are other things that God has given to us to do besides normal life, besides eating and drinking and family. God has told us to have jobs, and most of the time that's outside the home. God has told us to serve here in the church, the body of Christ, and he's told us to serve people around us. God wants us to do all of those things. He wants us to accomplish things in the world. But those things should not replace the common blessings that God has given us. We need to ask the question, do I see normal life, including my family, as just that other thing out? This is really important. Frankly, that's why a lot of pastors' children went south in my generation and before. Because their dads were taught They didn't come to it on their own. They were taught in a generation to say there is nothing more important from the Lord's work, even if it means ignoring your family, I won't say completely, but extremely so. And so children grew up saying, well, my dad loves all those people, but he doesn't love me. You can see the obvious dichotomy. The the classic example is, is the man who loves his work but doesn't love his family, or somebody who gets so wrapped up in an organization that they don't have time for their family. We need to be careful. Now, I said, I said here very, very carefully, too much focus. Because there are people who, 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 who think that somehow God has told them to worship their family. And so they ignore God's work in the world and they ignore their, their other responsibilities before God to worship their family. God, the, the, the Christian life that God would have for us is about balance. And so we need to look at our, at our life and say, now what is God's priority and on the, and this day and that day and how do I balance all these things together? There's another thing that keeps us from enjoying normal life and it's this, too much focus on what is wrong. Too much focus on what is wrong I'm guessing your family isn't perfect. Just taking a flying leap there. Jay Adams, who's the father of the modern biblical counseling movement, defines the Christian home in his book called The Christian Home. He says, what is a Christian family? A Christian family, a Christian home is a place where sinners dwell. You know, that's an important starting point. Because none of us, even though we be saved, are perfected. And so we have to say, wait a minute. Why am I always focusing on what people don't do? We're all growing in the Lord. We're all going to have some difficulties. The question that I want to ask you is, are you meditating on what is wrong, or are you meditating on what is right? Every Christian has some good points and some points where they need to grow. If it's in your family, the question is, what are you focusing on? I'm guessing your house isn't perfect. I've been working on mine for 11 years, and I'm not done yet. But it keeps me warm and dry, and it gives me a place to have some fun in the workshop and in the kitchen and with the kids. Do you know what the placebo effect is in medicine? Do you know why placebos work for some people, it's because of where they focus their thinking. When people are ill, 
they tend to look at, think about their body and say, well, this isn't right, or that isn't right, or I have this symptom or that symptom, and they know last week I didn't have it, but today I have it, and I'm thinking about the symptoms, thinking about the symptoms, thinking about the symptoms. And so in a placebo test, they give some people a real drug to see if it impacts their symptoms. They give other people a, a sugar pill or a, just a, you know, an empty pill of some sort. And you know why some people feel better when they take a placebo? Because they start to go, I think this is a little better. And I think that's a little better. Now, truth be told, they may still have their same symptoms, but they're thinking about their wellness, not about their sickness. Now, the Christian life is more than that. But part of it, part of the Christian life is to say, what has God given me? What do I have? What are these people? How have they grown how have they moved forward? That's what Philippians 4.8 is about. Whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, virtuous, anything praiseworthy, meditate, think on these things. The word there for, for think or for meditate is choose. Make a conscious choice about what you're going to think. It's a great privilege to be able to go to a place like China and climb up part of the Great Wall. We did that a month ago or so. Um, I like seeing the sights in a place like China. Um, you can see interesting things. They would not have received a building permit for this if they'd have submitted plans today because it is, it is actually steeper than what that looks. I should be up like that. but I enjoy seeing the sights, but honestly, I enjoy seeing everything. You know, ride the train, uh, see what's out there, see what's over there, go to this store, go to that store. The whole thing, the whole thing is sightseeing to me. I don't have to go to the Great Wall or Tiananmen Square. That's nice, but that's just one little piece. Some people in their lives, when they travel, are so focused on the destination and on getting there that they miss everything along the way. Your Christmas is waiting to be richly enjoyed no matter how meager or majestic your celebration will be, because God has already given you all that you need all along the way. I want to challenge you to enjoy the whole trip today, your whole life, not just some little things that, that the world says you're supposed to have, to enjoy Christmas because you have God and all that he's given you. Heavenly Father, help us today. We are so impacted by our society that wants to make Christmas about, about material gifts only. And I just, I just pray that you'd help us. Help us to truly, truly understand your gifts to us and live in those gifts and enjoy them, not only this week, but throughout the year. I pray in Christ's name, amen.